I'm Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be here with you. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 this evening. So uh, if you could turn there, if you need a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand, and one of the guys will bring you a Bible. Um, if, you, if you don't own a Bible, this one's yours. Please keep it. If you do, uh, we will rent this one to you for a tithe. 1 Thessalonians 1. Um, we tend to go through books of the Bible. That's what we like to do. We um, unfortunately have not done that in a little while, um, at least not since the spring. So um, it's good to be back in a book. We started last week. We did the first word of 1 Thessalonians. We read Paul and then kind of bunny trailed from there and looked at who the apostle Paul was um, considering he wrote this book. He wrote half your New Testament and we thought it might be good to make sure everybody had a basic idea of who he was and, and why we should listen to him. And so uh, we looked at the apostle Paul yesterday, so we want to, um, or last week, so we want to continue on in 1 Thessalonians do the first 10 verses. So if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Stop there. Um, almost every one of Paul's letters is written to a church um, or the leaders of a church. There, there are, are lone exceptions, but um, most of the books are written to a church or the leaders, pastors of that church. And so um, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus would be written to pastors of churches, um, but Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are all written to churches. So the idea is that Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, the church in Galatia, in this case, the church in Thessalonica. And, and Paul's pattern um, was to go into a new city uh, to preach the gospel, first in the synagogues, um, and then depending on the response, he would eventually move out of the synagogues into the public places um, to interact with non-Jewish people um, and, and preach the gospel, and there would be fruit. People would inevitably get saved. Um, he would gather those people together, disciple them, oftentimes raise up elders, um, leave them, or, or leave a guy that he had brought with him to be the pastor of that church and then move on and continue to do it and then write letters back to those churches to answer questions for them, to encourage them, to um, further their discipleship in certain areas. And so um, this is no exception. Paul went to Thessalonica with Silas and so um, I want to look at that real quick and that's in Acts chapter 17. We see Paul's um, very brief stay in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17. Verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphiphamine and, and the other place, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them in the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So what Paul would do is he would go into the synagogue and be speaking to Jewish people who believed, trusted, knew the Old Testament and would simply connect the dots from the Old Testament to Jesus. And so he'd go, remember this prophecy and this prophecy and this prophecy. Remember this story. All of them pointed forward to Jesus. And so he'd go, remember when the prophets um, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? Yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Remember when the prophets said that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? What did Jesus ride in on a donkey? 
No, a, a donkey. He rode in on a donkey, and so they'd mess things up from time to time. But, but he would connect the dots to them and, and, and say, listen, this, this man you've been waiting for, this Messiah that you've been waiting for, I'm telling you, um, it's Jesus. And, and as it says here, many people would be saved. It says uh, in verse 4, some of them were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, just as an aside, I'm, I'm sure that these Jews, as they talked to the city officials, dragging Jason and his friends up, going, these are the guys um, that have turned the world upside down. I have no doubt that the Jews meant that phrase um, as a derogatory term, but I've got to believe that Jason and his buddies in that moment when they hear the Jews say, these are the guys who turn the world upside down, have to be at least a little proud of themselves, and a little maybe fist bump there and go, yeah, right, that's right, that's us, because I, I, that's, that's something significant, and, and probably far more than, than most of us can say or, or could ever dream of having said about us, that these, these men, these disciples of Jesus, turned the world upside down. It says, Jason received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So turn back to 1 Thessalonians 1. Um, but if you, if you read that right, they were only in Thessalonica for three weeks, one of the shorter stays it says he only preached on three Sabbaths before the uproar and they got run out of town. So he was only there for three weeks. Not enough time at all to raise up, really disciple those people, raise up elders. And so um, he sent leaders back, sent Timothy in particular back to Thessalonica to check on this church. And, and most of what we read here in 1 Thessalonians is a response to Timothy's report. So what would happen is either word would get back through letters to Paul um, or, or he would send one of his guys who would then come back and go, okay, here's what's going on in this church. And so most of the letters that we see Paul writing are in response to specific issues or specific questions um, that were going on in that church. And so we can tell a lot about a church and the health of that church simply by reading Paul's letters to them, kind of going, okay, how, how deep are their issues? How jacked up are they? Um, the, the Thessalonians are, are really, really good. There are no major issues. There's going to be three themes that we're going to look at um, here in, in the book, but there, there was, this is nothing compared to what was going on in, say, Corinth, um, where there was a guy sleeping with his dad's wife, and everyone in the church was like, oh, aren't we so inclusive and open? And Paul's going, no, that's evil, evil, and deeply gross, okay? And so um, you, you can kind of tell a lot about the church just by just by reading um, about them in the Thessalonians. I mean, this is encouragement after encouragement after encouragement. The three themes that come up are, are really more questions, theological questions, um, that the Thessalonians are wrestling with um, than they are kind of deep-seated sin. And so the first one that we're going to look at um, beginning tonight um, is, is this idea of assurance. They, they had some question of how, how do we know that we're Christians? 
Okay, how, how can we be sure um, that we just didn't have some kind of crazy experience and we've just replaced one old Jewish religious system with this new kind of Jesus religious system? How do we know that there's something significant has happened and that there's change? The second thing is, is eschatological. They have a question about the end times. And so we'll finish all of chapter five, at the end of chapter four and chapter five, are all about end times. When's this gonna happen? How's this gonna happen? What, what are we looking forward to? And we're gonna be looking at that um, as our Advent little mini-series as First Thessalonians is gonna take us um, through the end of the year. And then in the middle, they're, they're asking a question of kind of the tension between those two things. Okay, we've become Christian, and that means something for now. Um, but we also know that a huge part of being Christian is, is looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so they had questions about how do we live and the tension of we need to care to some degree about now, um, but we also need to, to be looking forward and how do we navigate that. So um, we'll be teaching on those things as, as the series develops. So verse 2. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a very standard Pauline introduction to a letter. Nearly every one of his letters um, begins about this way. We love you. We remember you. We're praying for you. We're so excited for you. Only one of his letters doesn't start that way, and that's Galatians. And at that point, you, you got to know if you're a Galatian, and you open up Paul's letter, and it's like, I, Paul, hate you, Galatians, and I forget you in my prayers, and I've cursed you on high. you got to know the rest of this is just going to go bad. So um, every letter pretty much starts this way. What, what's unique about this um, is that Paul lays down some, some themes that we'll see in the rest of his letter. So 1 Thessalonians is the very first epistle, chronologically, the first epistle written. So um, it, what's interesting is as we read other epistles and we see um, his theology develop over time, um, some of these themes that are so well developed in later books are really clear even in the very first letter. Okay, and we're going to see some of those um, tonight. So in this first section, verses 2 and 3, he says something that I want to point out that's, that will kind of set the tone for us, not only for tonight, but for the series. Verse 3 again. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you can say Paul has um, spiritual values or, or, or kind of um, three main ideas that he carries throughout almost all of his books, it, these are them. Faith, hope, and love. Right? I mean, th these are, these are um, ideas and values that come up over and over and over um, in his letters. And here we go in the third verse of his first letter. Already he's laying that down going, uh, what I thank God for and what I remember and what I care about and where, what your reputation is, is that you've nailed um, this faith and love and hope. If, if you're familiar with the, the best and worst wedding verse of all time, it's 1 Corinthians 13, all about love and love is this and love is that. And just an FYI, Paul is basically giving a scathing review to the Corinthian church, calling them hypocrites and telling them what love actually is and how terrible at it they are. So happy wedding, right? So um, <laughs> at, at the end of at the end of that first section, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, 
and the greatest of these is love. And so the, these ideas could be said are, um, are Paul's kind of spiritual values, if you can just boil it down to, to kind of this triad of words that come up over and over and over. Now, what's interesting about that to me is, as I reflected on this passage, is I, I think you can make an argument that faith, hope, and love are also the spiritual values of our culture. Now, I think that our culture and Paul would, would disagree on the explanation of them. In fact, I'm going to make that argument as we get into the text. But I think that faith, hope, and love are, the, in kind of a general sense, the values, spiritual values of our culture. So um, you always hear about people being a, a, being a person of faith. Right? This seems to be the politically correct way to describe someone who believes in something, right? That is religious, that is a Christian or a Muslim or Hindu or whatever the case may be, whatever the belief is, they are a person of faith. And so we can talk very politically correctly um, about people of faith if we use that phrase because it's generic enough and, and vague enough. Um, that, that it's a generally accepted term. But what's interesting to me about how our culture uses this word faith and how Paul uses this word faith is there's two things that seem to be um, kind of inhibitors in our cultural use of the word faith. One is um, when that faith becomes too specific, it becomes problematic in our culture. So it's okay to be a person of faith as long as it's not defined much beyond that. As long as it's not a specific, there's not a specific object of one's faith. The, the moment we start to go, no, 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 I, I do have faith, but it's a very specific, I have faith in Jesus, or I have this faith or this belief very specifically, that's when we get into trouble. It's okay to say, I, I have faith in the general goodness of humanity, or I have faith in a higher power, but when we go, no, my faith is in Jesus, it gets a little squirrely. Second is when our faith is um, kind of breaks through a threshold of, of, of amount. So when, when we have just kind of a generic little bit of faith, and we go, oh yeah, I, I believe in, in, the, in the generic goodness of humanity, or I, I believe in a higher power. But when it passes a certain threshold to, no, I really believe this stuff, we, we move past person of faith into radical or fanatic, or, and then we're dangerous. Okay, so um, the way our culture, I think, uses this, this idea, this value of faith is as long as it stays very gen- generic and, and pretty low-key and isn't, isn't really moving you in any specific direction to have convictions on, on any specific thing. That doesn't seem to be the way Paul's using this, and, and here's how I know it. He has action words in front of all, these, all of these values, saying not just faith, not just celebrating their faith, but the work of their faith, that their faith is significant enough to them, it's, it's specific enough, and, and there's enough of it to actually drive them to do something as a result of it, right? So they, they don't have the ability to just go, hey, I, I'm, I'm kind of a person of faith, I believe in some things. No, they're going, I, I believe in these things, and I believe in them strongly. I actually 
trust Jesus, and that trust of Jesus is going to um, make me do certain things. I'm not going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in the things I see around me as much as I trust in Jesus. So trusting in Jesus trumps all of what you would call just common wisdom or rational thought. Like if Jesus trumps those things, if Jesus disagrees with those things, Jesus wins. And so that's going to move me to live in certain ways. And so it's not the faith per se that Paul celebrates, but it's the work of their faith. It's the fact that their faith is specific enough and there is enough of it to mandate movement and action. He goes, that's what I love about you. That, that you have a faith that moves you. You have a faith that's connected to certain behaviors that don't make any sense if you didn't have that faith. Okay, so that's one. Number two is, he says that there is a love, but not just any love, not just how perhaps our culture would use the word love as, as more of a, an idea of acceptance, uh, of, of uh, maybe we'll say ambivalent feelings towards um, people, groups of people, ideas, actions, um, that's just kind of generally accepting and we just want to love people. We hear, hear, hear this all the time, that we should love one another and care for one another and that we should have love for all people. Great. Paul is excited about the Thessalonians because they have a type of love that it's actually a laborious love. A a love that, that hits a certain threshold when it stops being fun and stops being easy and, and passes through that to go, okay, no, I'm actually, I'm actually going to love this person. And I I would argue um, that a love that does not require labor isn't love. It may be infatuation, it may be cultural acceptance, it may be a lot of things. It may just be kind of an emotional experience, but it's not love. So raise your hand if if you're single. I just mean not married. Come on, raise them high, be proud. You never know. You never know who could see right now. This could be the last time you have to answer that question that way. I'm just, just saying, guys. I just gave you a line. So I saw your hand was up, and uh, so was mine. I don't know. Everybody that didn't raise their hand knows the, the labor of love. Okay. No, knows that it takes about 15 minutes um, before um, love ceases to be easy and come natural and that you, it becomes a choice. So last night, um, my, my wife and I were in bed and, and it, was, it was cold and so we're snuggled and it's good. I mean, not snuggling with each other, we need our distance, but in the blankets and, and it, was, it was great. And then um, my daughter, who's three, and my son, who's three months, um, apparently got together uh, right before we went to bed and said, here's the deal, I'll take the top of the hour, you take the bottom of the hour, we'll just cry. Not, nothing will really be wrong, but let's just cry and keep them up and just see what we can, how we can mess with them. And so, um, so Lily would wake up at 12 and 1 and 2 and 3, and Cole would wake up at 12.30 and 1.30 and 2.30, and they're on walkie-talkies, like, okay, go. And, and it's just... <laughs> It was all bad. And so you play this game, um, it, and it's a funny thing that happens as, as, you, you know, as your kids get older. When, I remember when Lily was first born, she was premature, so this made it even worse, but I would wake up in the middle of the night and get up willfully. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I, I would, would get up willfully and walk over and just put my ear next to her mouth to make sure she's breathing. 
I don't even care about that anymore. I mean, it's, it's crazy how that changes. But uh, so, so there, there comes this moment, there comes this moment though, when you're laying in bed and you hear the crying and, and kids will, will tend to like kind of cry and then stop and then cry. And so you play this game where you go, okay, well, that was just one cry. It's probably just a bad dream. It's fine, you know. Um, some, some giant baby doll's chasing her or something. She's cool. And, and, and then there's a second one. She's like, oh, okay, well, she probably just defeated the baby doll. She's good, you know. And, I, and then you kind of go, oh, okay, she's wailing now. All right, all right, somebody should get up. And then, and then step two is, well, in the morning, I have to deliver the word of the Lord. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sure Emily has some things to do too, but, but and so you kind of roll over, because for 30 minutes now, you've both pretend, been pretending you're asleep, and so you, you roll over, and I'm looking at her like, word of the Lord, and, and she looks at me like, I don't care, and, and, uh, and so you get up, and you do it, and, and, that's, and there's just, there's a labor, there's a moment of choice, you're going to choose to love your children, you're going to choose to love your wife, you're, you have to, or, or you bail, and those are your choices. And so um, it, it's one thing for that to happen in, in the romantic and the family and all that, but in, in Arcadia this morning, they announced that the Arcadia congregation is going to be participating in this thing called a love feast. And love feast is a really cool deal. What they do is um, a, they, they choose a, a restaurant, international restaurant owned by international people that, that are native to that, to that style of food. And so they'll pick um, a restaurant. In this case, they picked an Uzbek restaurant. There's a lot of Uzbek immigrants um, that, that uh, are, are there in the Arcadia area. And they pick an Uzbek restaurant and they all show up on one night, pack the place out to bless them financially, first of all, because can't imagine Uzbek re- uh, restaurants are packed out all the time. So um, they, they, they go there to pack out the restaurant. Um, the, the owner of the restaurant is blessed financially, but then also gets to talk about what it's like to be an Uzbek immigrant and, and what's it like to experience life in Arcadia as an immigrant and all this kind of thing. So it's an opportunity for the church to bless the restaurant and the owner, but also the owner to teach. And it's just this really, really cool deal. And, and, and almost 100% of the time, if not 100% of the time, the owner is not a believer. Um, they are typically Muslim or Hindu. or they are. Um, it, it's an opportunity to do some, some really cool stuff. I mean, essentially to love our neighbors. And, and as Tyler was making that announcement this morning, I just thought, man, at, right now, there, there, are, there are almost everyone in, in the crowd is going, okay, w- let me think of reasons why I don't have to do this. Like, I, I, there's no way I'm going to an Uzbek restaurant. Like, what do Uzbeks eat? What, 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 is, what is an Uzbek? Where, where do I go? What, am I going to be chasing amphibians around the room, like crunching heads? I don't even know where Uzbekaland is, okay? So uh, there's, there's all of these, all of these, all of these reasons why, why, I, why I don't have to labor to love my neighbor. Okay, and so we, we come up with all these things all the time. So what Paul's saying is here is, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not super excited about your emotional response. I'm not super excited about how accepting and generally ambivalent you are towards all races and cultures and identities. He goes, I love that you labor in love. 
in your relationships with one another, with your neighbors, with your community, you get to the point where love is hard and you do the hard work. You labor in love. And lastly, he goes, and you have this steadfastness of hope that, that I, I, just, I just love it. And, and you know why their hope was steadfast? Because they, they didn't put their hope in um, their political hopes and dreams. Their, their hope was, I mean, if you want to talk about cultural values, right? I mean, our entire presidential campaign was built on this word that things can change, that there, there's hope for the future, that things can get better. And so it, for these Thessalonians, their hope was not in the fact that their political leader was in power or not in power. It wasn't in the fact that they had their 401k was, was you know, producing really well. It wasn't in the fact that their relationships were good and their family was good and their kids were growing up and getting into the right schools and all that. It says, it says right here, their steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because they decided to invest their future, invest their hope in the one thing that never changes. Finances do this, presidential candidates do this, family does this, relationships do this, work does this, Jesus never changes. His work's already been done. It's finished, it's complete. And because of the fact that they knew where to place their hope, their hope would be steadfast because what they are hoping in, who they've entrusted their future to, doesn't change and is all-powerful. And so Paul goes, when I pray for you, I remember the work of your faith. I remember the labor of your love. I remember the steadfastness of your hope. And that's what I get excited about. So here's the uniqueness of a passage like this one, a unique challenge for me. Um, typically, when Paul breaks down an idea in his epistles, he says, here's the problem. You're not saying you're not loving the poor. Here's why you're not loving the poor. It's because you're selfish. It's because you have an idol of security and safety, and you wouldn't want to give away money because then that would undercut your safety and security. And he goes, here's, here's how you fix it. You're, you're in some way disbelieving or misbelieving the gospel. And if you would just believe that God will take care of you, that God will provide for you, and that God has called us to care for the poor, you wouldn't have this caring for the poor problem. And so you, you, it's easy to know um, when to drop the hammer right, as the preacher, because it's when Paul drops the hammer. And so in a passage like this, there is no hammer, and I like hammers, okay? And so you, you have to go through this passage, and there's no problem. It's, gosh, you guys are great, you guys are great, you do this well, and you do this well, and you do this well, and I'm so excited about that, and excited about that, and so there's no hammer to be had. So here's how I think we approach this passage, like a mirror. We hold this passage up to us, as Paul describes what is an idyllic um, vision of Christian community, what, what community really looks like when we live out kingdom values of faith that provides work, love to the point of labor, and steadfastness of hope. When, when those three values truly permeate a community, this is what it looks like. So I, I want us to read these next six or seven verses and, and I want us to allow them to reflect onto our lives and see ourselves, not only as individuals, but as a community, see ourselves in light of what Paul is so excited about 
in the, in the Thessalonians. I keep wanting to call them the first Thessalonians. They're the only Thessalonians. <laughs> so, here we go. Verse four. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because, now let's stop there. This is the first of our theological issues that the Thessalonians are dealing with. The question of how do we know that, that we are saved? How do we know that God has set us apart for salvation? And Paul, at least, has no doubts. Paul is going, I, I know that y'all are saved. I was there. I saw it. I experienced it. Here's how I know. He goes, we, we know, brothers loved by God, that you have been chosen because... And there's going to be two pieces of this, an internal piece and an external piece. He goes, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He goes, listen, when when I walked into that synagogue and I started breaking it down and going, okay, Old Testament Jesus, prophets Jesus, the law Jesus, and something in some moment clicked for you intellectually. There was some moment when, when you went, Oh, man, I've never seen that before. I've always been wondering who those prophecies spoke of. And when I told you it was Jesus, it clicked. He he doesn't say that that understanding the gospel intellectually is bad. He goes, it just, it didn't stop there. Right? There has to be that moment for every Christian when when the gospel clicks for us. We go, okay, I've, I've always experienced the fall, and I've always wondered why things are so jacked up and people are so self-serving, and I've always wondered why things tend to degrade. But, but until I heard the story, until I understood it in these terms, it never clicked for me. Until I, until I had it unpacked for me um, that my kind of vague polytheism doesn't make any real sense, I, I just was kind of going down that path unthinkingly perhaps, and, and in this moment it went click, maybe because of a message, maybe because of a book, maybe because of a conversation, it just clicked. And the, and the gospel made sense. But he goes, for you guys, it, it didn't stop there. And, and here's what I'll say just very briefly on that. I think for many of us, it stopped there. I think for many of us, we went, okay, that can make some sense for the world. That, that makes my world make sense. That gives me some categories that I can understand my, my kind of life experience and interaction with people, and so click, done. And, and because our experience of the gospel has been primarily an intellectual one, our pursuit of the gospel continues to be an intellectual one, and the manifestation of our faith is purely intellectual. So there's no connection to um, an actual dynamic God. And there's very little connection to our life beyond, beyond kind of morality driven by our intellectual understanding of the gospel. So he goes, for you guys, it, it went beyond that. I saw it. Because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. I I saw that moment where not only did it click for you mentally, but you were overwhelmed by by the transcendent. You were overwhelmed. There There was this moment where, yes, this made sense to you, but it almost didn't matter that this made sense to you because your experience of the Holy Spirit, whether that manifested itself in some gift, whether it was prophecy or tongues or some healing or some deal, or or if it was just a a moment of feeling the transcendent work of God, because you had that. I saw it. We all all saw it. That moment when the Holy Spirit revealed itself to you in a powerful way. 
Now, here's the thing. Every Christian has experienced this. In some way or in some moment, every Christian has experienced the, the power of the gospel at work, the power of God at work in their lives. Here's, here's, it's devious. But one of the ways that I think Satan works, and, and maybe his most powerful tool, is forgetfulness. It's amazing how, how often this happens that I have um, a, a family or a couple come up to me and go, hey, here's the deal. I gotta tell you the story. We had these bills and we had this money and these bills were more than this money. And the day before the deadline, either one of these bills mysteriously got taken away or someone dropped a, an anonymous $1,000 in cash into our mailbox and, and it worked. And we hear that story and we celebrate that story and we, we dance and we sing a song together and it's just this, this incredible moment to praise and to worship the faithfulness of God, the provision of God in that moment. And then inevitably, six months go by, a year goes by, and, and they go, here's the deal, we've got these bills and, and, and we've got this money and it's just not gonna work and I don't know how it's gonna work and, and why has God abandoned us in this moment? And I go, first, you need to learn how to manage your money, for crying out loud. Second of all, um, have you already forgotten what God did last time? Have you already forgotten that God provided for you and has provided for you over and over and over and over? Why in this moment do you choose to forget that and freak out and shake your fist at God? Why have you abandoned me? Don't you remember the last time? And this happens to us over and over and over, that, that God um, provides for us, that God protects us, that God works in us, that God opens our eyes, that, that you come to me and go, oh my gosh, my, my friend, my coworker asked me this question, and, and I don't know the answer to the question, and I, I'm starting to wonder if this Christianity thing is true, and it shakes your faith to the core, and then we sit down, and we spend a couple hours, or maybe a couple weeks, and we break it down, and we learn and teach, and you go, oh my gosh, there is an answer to that, and you go back to your coworker, and you go, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't know the answer but I looked it up I talked to my pastor and here's the answer and they're like wow it's a great answer I love Jesus too now and and don't, you know you remember that moment and then and, and then it happens again and somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to and you freak out and go well Jesus can't be real because I don't know that answer you go, well there's a lot of things you don't know remember what happened last time we just read the Bible and studied it and looked it up and figured it out and there was an answer there's always an answer and, and yet, every single time, we forget what God has done for us the last time. Paul's going, I saw the work of the Holy Spirit. I saw the gospel come to you in power. I saw that moment. How can you forget that? Don't forget that. I, now, I, I, I have this moment in my life, and, and this is, it feels like a weird story, but um, when I was 17 or 18 years old, I was um, in my room, it was at night, and uh, I was kind of tossing and turning, couldn't really sleep, and I had my eyes closed, and, it, and there was a moment, you know when your eyes closed, but a light comes on, you can see it through your eyelids. Yeah, humans know that experience. Um, <laughs> it, it felt like that. It felt like someone was on me with a flashlight, and so I, I woke up, and, you know, and, and uh, I, I, was, I was ready, and, and there was, it was dark. There was nobody in the room. And, and in that moment, I, I was more awake, but not like adrenaline, there's an intruder awake, um, like awake but at peace. 
more awake than I've ever been in my entire life. And it was 3 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, in the middle of the night. And I remember sitting up, and, and the room was dark, and, and I remember just sitting up going, wow. I, I felt the presence of God in, in a way that I had, had never up to that point. And I, and I would say, have never since. And, and God has, has graciously allowed me to never forget that moment, never forget that feeling, that I, and, and in a way that I cannot explain other than using just biblical language of going, I felt a peace that I couldn't understand. I felt a warmth, I felt a, a, a courage. I felt like, if, if I wanna um, make it like a Christian coffee cup, I, I felt like God's arms were around me in, in, in the most significant way I, I have ever felt in my life. And I remember that because there have been other periods in my life where I felt very distant from God and I felt um, like my faith was only intellectual and, I, and it had been weeks or months since I had felt the presence of God in any, to any degree. I, I have never and I hope I will never forget that one evening that, that, that God revealed himself to me in, in a really powerful way. And th- those are the kind of moments that I think Paul is trying to remind them of, to go, listen, don't forget that when you heard the gospel, there was a moment of transcendence. Not, not only did it click for you mentally, but something happened here. And he goes, you receive the gospel not only um, in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Like, you guys all left that synagogue going, hey, I don't understand all of this, and I can't connect all the dots, and it's been three weeks, Paul, so I definitely, there's gaps in my theology, but I know that this contains the truth about the world, that this word points to the God of the universe, that this is, this is the thing that directs me to the source of all truth in life. Because there, there was not a doubt in anybody's mind in that moment. Y'all walked away going, I don't know that I get all of it, but I get that if I want to know something true, I go here. I go here. Yeah, so there was an internal piece, second part. It says, you know the kind of men we were, we, what we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us, and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So um, what's really interesting about this, it, what's, what's fun about it is we actually, we actually know at least in part what Paul's referencing here when he says that you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers. So in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking about generosity, and he says this in, verse, in 2 Corinthians 8.1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Guess where Thessalonica is? Macedonia. Good work. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. So he's going, there, there was this moment. Do you remember this moment, Thessalonians? You remember that moment when your work of faith was very tangible in that you heard about the poverty going on in Jerusalem, the great need in Jerusalem, and you said, well, well, we have to be a part of solving that problem. And everyone else looked around at you, Thessalonians, and went, but you're poor. You don't have any money. And you went, we've got something, and you're in your poverty. It welled up in generosity, and you, the poor people, gave to the other poor people. It was, that, that was an amazing example of you going, yeah, I know that, that traditional wisdom and, and common sense says we're super poor and so we should be getting stuff, but we believe in Jesus. We believe that Jesus not only will provide for us, but despite that fact, we believe that Jesus has called us as Christians to care for the poor. And there's people in need, and so we believe we will work out our faith and be consistent in that and give to the poor. And this is amazing what it, what it says about them to the Thessalonians. It says, verse eight, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, so not only are they preaching the gospel, but your faith in God, God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he goes, we, we go into other cities and people come up to us and go, Do, did you hear how the Thessalonians received Paul and Silas? And they're going, yeah, I'm Paul meet Silas, right? So he's going, yeah, people are telling us about you. We, we don't even have to say anything because people come up to us and go, did you hear about the Thessalonians? Not, not only did they respond, not only was there power in the gospel and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, but it welled up in the fact that they became imitators of you, imitators of God, that in spite of their affliction, they had joy in the Holy Spirit. They were generous with other people in the midst of their affliction. They, they actually walked in what they believed. They proclaimed the gospel. They demonstrated the gospel. They turned away from idols to serve the living and true God, and now they wait for the coming of Jesus. And Paul's going, yeah, I was there. That, that was really cool. Their reputation has gone out in the region. And Paul sings their praises. Paul goes, this is what it's all about. You have a faith that is specific and, and overwhelming to the point that it would actually cause you to do something. You have an understanding of love that goes beyond fond feelings and begins to be a labor and you've placed your hope in the one to come. And that's a hope that produces steadfastness. So here's what we need to do, is hold up this to our face. And go, if, if Paul had spent three weeks with us, if Paul had then sent Timothy to come back and spend, I don't know how much time with us, to be a part of our lives as individuals, but also a part of our community, what report would Paul send back? Would, it, would he tell of our works-producing faith? Would he tell of the, the lengths to which we were willing to labor in love? Would he tell, tell Paul about how steadfast our hope was because we didn't hope in the things we saw around us, the things we could touch and taste and hear and see? 
but that our hope was in Christ, and so it would never waver? Is that the story that Paul would tell about us? So as I've had ample opportunity over the last couple of weeks to reflect back on seven years of ministry, and, and no doubt will continue to do so over the coming months, to, to think about what, what we've produced here over time, certainly what God has done. There's so much that I am so proud of and so excited about, but there is a moment where, where I am frightened by the number of people that, that have and, and can continue to come through those doors week after week, after week, after week. And, and don't experience an ever-increasing love for God. An, an ever-deepening sense of their own sin. An, an ever-increasing desire for repentance and worship. The people who have been coming to church for decades... I know that there are some people in here who you're new and everyone's kind of different places. I get that. Some of you are here for a girl or you're here for a boy. You're here in the hopes of a girl or boy and the best thing I've ever done is make you raise your hand and, 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 that, and I get that. But, but there are a lot of people who have been here for a really long time and have been coming over and over and over and over and what they are doing is a religious and there is no sense of the awe of God. There is, no, there is no fear of the wrath to come that Paul speaks of here. No, no, no awareness of, of the anger of God against sin. And therefore no sense of the need for repentance. No, no sense of the need to draw near to God. And so you come in over and over and over and week after week after week to massage some guilt that your parents have on you, that your wife or your husband has on you, and you do a religious thing. And you've been doing the religious thing for decades, for years maybe. I, I can't tell you what a foolish hobby you've chosen. Th this has got to be the most boring hobby anyone could choose. What do you do for fun? I go get yelled at every week. It's great. This isn't, this isn't cool enough. The music's not good enough. I'm not funny enough. It's not worth it. And, and my fear is that, that if we had a moment to, to honestly see our reflection in light of that, we would come up woefully short. And, and Timothy might, might come back to Paul and say, they're there every week. They sing most of the time. Um, they, they are generally moral. I didn't, didn't witness any murders. So that's in, in their favor. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're good people. They're, they're very secure and very wealthy and some of them are very generous and some of them are very sacrificial and some of them are great, but there, there are a lot of people at that church that just kind of come in, do their thing, go, come back, 
do their thing, go, come back, maybe skip a week, come back, skip two weeks, come back. And, and there's, there's not an increasing hunger for the word of God. There's not an increasing desire for an experience of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's worrisome. That's worrisome. Now, I, I know that that speaks to a certain percentage of those in the room, and then there's some of you that are looking around like, is he serious? Like, is this Paul, first of all, is this Paul guy for real? That, that I should care about a faith that makes me work? a labor of love and a steadfastness of hope, who cares about that stuff? Why in the world should I celebrate a people who were super poor and then willingly made themselves more poor? That sounds completely stupid to me. And you're telling me that, that the kind of the crux of this story is that God sent his son to live a perfect life, to be killed on a cross, and to be raised from dead on the third day, and that's supposed to save my sins? That story sounds insane. And I get that. It is kind of insane. There, there's, there's, no sen- there's, there's no sense in which we should read that and go, yeah, that's normal. That happened once. And it is a crazy story. Um, I read an article this week um, that said that scientists think they may have found um, something that goes faster than the speed of light by like one sixty billionth of a second. But these scientists are freaking out, right? So I, I read this article and the heading just said may have found something faster than the speed of light. And I went, Oh, okay. But apparently it's a big deal. And so I, I kept reading, and, and the scientists that they interviewed said, this, this literally, if this is true, um, it, it could set, in some ways, set physics back decades. Because things that we always just thought were true may not be true anymore. And, and one scientist said, I, we don't even want to think about the implications of this. Because we've got to test this and test this and test this and prove it and prove it and prove it like a thousand times because of what this undoes. There was something called E equals MC squared that it messed with, right? I wasn't totally sure. The scientists were literally like, this, this is such a paradigm changer that, that this could have massive implications. And, and I kind of feel like what Paul's saying here is one of those kinds of things. So we're, we're, when we're new to this thing, when we're coming to this, these ideas for the first time, we've we got to come to this and go, that doesn't make sense. Those are values that are completely different from my values. Why would this be a model person or a model community? This sounds like a community of failures, This sounds like a community of people who will never be successful, who will never be wealthy, who will never be content, that will never experience the kinds of things that I want to experience. Exactly. Exactly. I remember sitting down with a a young girl who had just found out that she was pregnant, not married, and was very upset about it. Her friend, we had a mutual friend who got us together, and I sat down with her, and, and I was 
feeling particularly ornery, and I, and I just went right, right at it, and I just said, here's the deal. If you try to add Jesus to your life in this moment because you think you need something to help you through this, you're going to miss it completely. Not only will you miss Jesus, but, but you'll miss out on, on this situation. It, it, it's, all gonna, it's just going to be all bad. I said, it, this is not a scenario where you can just add Jesus to your life and to the mix and kind of make it a salad and do that deal. This has got to be Jesus at the center, everything else revolving around it, or, or, this, or the gospel makes no sense. It produces moralistic people who just kind of want to be like Jesus if Jesus isn't at the middle of it. And, and, and I went straight at it. And, and, and laid it down and said, this is, this is, not, this is not a behavioral change. This is not um, a, a philosophical idea. This is a person at the center of the universe that needs to be at the center of your life. And everything is secondary. Everything revolves around that. And, and in a moment of Holy Spirit power, she got it. She accepted it. She figured it out. She married that guy. She, they've had two more kids. They're at a ch- an Acts 29 church plant in Northern California, and they're awesome. Because she made the choice to put Jesus at the middle and not at the side. And that's what Paul is demanding. That's what Paul is lifting up in the Thessalonians going, you guys figured it out. You figured out that the kind of faith that produces a new life is the kind of faith that matters. The kind of love that's so deep and profound and and wide that it actually takes you past the point of what's fun and easy and makes you labor. And a steadfastness in your hope because your hope is in the thing that never changes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. If for no other reason... And it shows us that there is uh, a real meaning to, to life here on earth. That it's not random. That, that life is not just happening all around us. But that you were there at the beginning of it. You were there in the middle of it. You have always been there. You will always be there. And it's moving towards an end that you have in mind. That you have already established. So Lord, I I pray that as we reflect now on your words to the Thessalonians, I pray that we would see ourselves in the mirror of those words, see ourselves in light of that. that we too would experience the gospel not only in word but in power and in the Holy Spirit and that it would cause us to respond being imitators of those around us who are godly, who are imitating you, that we would imitate not only them but also directly you, that we would receive the word in affliction, that we would experience the joy of the Holy Spirit, that we would proclaim the gospel, demonstrate the gospel, live out our faith in really significant ways. That you would not just be um, an addendum to our lives, the spiritual part of our lives, 
but that we would do the wise thing and put you in the middle of it, understanding that you're connected to every piece of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself unmistakable to us. In Jesus' name, amen.